Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome. Uh, today is uh, one of our shows where we bear down hard and dig deeply into a particular topic. This time it's ventriloquism. I should say, as the listeners know, I am very old. Uh, and as a result, I grew up watching ventriloquists on television a lot. Uh, they were especially on Ed Sullivan. Um, and I was quite familiar with the whole idea. And then they kind of went away. I mean, you didn't see them that much, except maybe, certainly on te- on television, you didn't see them that much. Uh, uh, now they've come back. I think uh, Jeff Dunham has kind of led the way. But uh, sh- there are variety shows again. America's Got Talent is essentially a variety show. Uh, so it has a much more diverse view of what a performance is. Uh, so you're starting to see ventriloquist again, which made us think a lot about the power dynamic between the ventriloquist and the dummy, whether you even say dummy anymore. It feels like it's like they probably have some more politically correct term for themselves. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that and about the uncanny valley and all kinds of stuff. And we've got great guests for you today. Steve Petra is here in studio, full-time professional ventriloquist and puppeteer specializing in performances for families and younger audiences. He was named 2019 Northeast Ventriloquist of the Year by the International Ventriloquist Society. And you can find him at PetraPuppets.com. And also joining us is Lisa Sweezy, curator and director of the Vent Haven Museum in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky. Yes, there is a museum dedicated to ventriloquism, and that's what it is and where it is. Uh, So very fortunate to have both of them. We have other guests joining us, or at least one other major guest as we go along. And also you'll hear Kyone Wolf get a ventriloquism lesson towards the end uh, from Steve. All right, so um, I want to begin by asking both Steve and Lisa the same question. Steve, I'll start with you because you're in studio. Some people would say, well, doing ventriloquism on the radio is kind of dopey because, I mean— the whole point of ventriloquism is to convince viewers that a voice is coming out of a place that it's not really supposed to be coming out of. But you would say, I think, that that underestimates the total experience of ventriloquism. Uh, in a way, it does. Um, it, it's as silly as people imagine it to be, for sure. But on the other hand, you have the history of Edgar Bergen, mm-hmm. who became enormously famous doing ventriloquism on the radio. And it was because of good writing, uh, good characters, the kind of things that that infuses any theatrical uh, uh, event or occurrence with with uh, audience pleasing results. Well, when when do, we'll we'll hear what that sounded like in just a second. But one difference between between the way I envision it anyway mm-hmm. between ventriloquism and puppetry is for the most part with puppetry we don't see the puppeteer and we don't really usually explore the relationship between the puppeteer and the puppet. W- with ventriloquism, it seems to me an awful lot of most acts that I've seen is about a relationship between a living, breathing human being and an inanimate but speaking thing. That is essential. I started I started as a puppeteer. I was not a ventriloquist. Mm-hmm. I was a musician, then I was a puppeteer. So my creative process is different than someone who just um, started as a, as a vent and proceeded that way. So um, what you're saying is exactly right. The relationship and, and the conflict that you draw, like if you take Edgar Bergen, for instance, the, what was the writing had to write conflicts, things about the personality that would uh, that would reveal an agenda of the character, 
and how that conflicted with um, what Bergen was trying to accomplish on his radio show. Right. So let's hear how that radio show sounded. This is the Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy radio show. They had their own radio comedy variety show from 36 to 55. That's how big this act was. This, by the way, is the father of Candace Bergen, if you don't know that. Uh, So let's hear what that sounded like. I would like to have you explain why all that racket happened downstairs in the sitting room last night. Uh, Racket, Bergen? Yes. I heard a terrible racket, didn't you? No, I guess I was so busy making it, I didn't listen. I didn't. Well, what I want to know is what caused it. Well, if you must know, Skinny Dugan and I, uh, we were fixing the chimney uh, for Santa Claus. What were you fixing? Yeah. Well, now, you won't get sore. No, I won't get sore. All right. Uh, we, we were putting a trap door in a fireplace. A trap door? Yeah. You don't mean to catch Santa Claus? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Good. Well, why did you do that? Well, he got away from us last year. This year we want to talk things over with him on the home ground. So, Lisa Sweezy, uh, maybe until Edgar Bergen did this, people might have wondered, as entertainment began to transition uh, so uh, intensively from the live stage, from vaudeville, from the places where ventriloquists would be uh, a pretty familiar sight, um, as that all migrated towards radio, there probably was a question about whether anybody would ever want that kind of act again. Uh, well, with regard to, to the radio audience, they, those were being broadcast from the theater, so the transition is very, very subtle. Um, Edgar Bergen had already done a lot of uh, Chautauqua, and he had done vaudeville and all of that, so he already had a pretty large um, audience in with regard to live people, and then broadcasting the radio performance, and then seeing him in uh, print materials and that type of thing. People really felt like they knew uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy as two separate individuals. Um, And Steve, you know, one of the things that's clear from that clip, and it's certainly there in most ventriloquist acts that I've ever seen, the ventriloquist himself, the vent, as you guys call it, the vent is the straight man. The dummy is the funny person, right? Is that universal? It's universal. Yeah. Um, it, it really has been, yes, yeah. since, especially since Edgar Bergen's development of of, um, of Charlie McCarthy. Prior to that character existing, a lot of times the ventriloquists were using the dummy almost like a just a prop to show how good of a ventriloquist they were. It really wasn't until that creation of Charlie that you see uh, the material develop into a, a personal relationship between the two. So let's follow that up, what you just said, Lisa, um, a prop to show how good of a ventriloquist you were. So in the old days uh, as a live stage act, you're suggesting that really it's sort of the illusion. My lips aren't moving. Vo- a voice is coming from somewhere else. Is that, is that how you show how good you are? Yes, yes, it was. It was considered that you were, you know, you were a great ventriloquist on technical merit. There wasn't really any emphasis on character development. Um, there would be for voice differentiation. You would need that. But as far as the dummy having a personality in and of himself, that really wasn't at all developed until you get to Edgar Bergen. The ventriloquists were trying to just impress people with the skill of doing ventriloquism. And and in some ways, Lisa. It, it occasionally was sort of a hustle, right? I mean, we should go back to 1772. Uh, there's a book by Jean-Baptiste La Chapelle, de la Chapelle in which he sort of is looking at this whole art form uh, as not so much as an art form, but something that people do often with ulterior motives. Absolutely. That, that 1772 book um, by De La Chapelle, that was the expose. That was the reason, that was the tipping point to go from 
ventriloquists being uh, making a living off being uh, charlatans and taking advantage of people uh, to making it at least a parlor trick and eventually an entertainment form. But yes, prior to that book, uh, ventriloquists would, you know, they would assert they had two sets of vocal cords or that God had given them this gift and don't try this at home. And then they would take advantage of people, whether it be, uh, you know, in, um, uh, you know, in, in large group settings or in more as individuals or whatever, they could pretend that we're, you know, more associated with the occult and that type of thing. Yeah, and we'll, we'll sort of circle back to that too. Steve, I could tell you had something to say there, though. Uh, I, I wanted to ask Lisa a question regarding something that you brought up, um, mm-hmm. being she knows more than that. I, I came into Vent as a, as a puppeteer, and what drew me in was uh, Valentine Vox's book, I Can See Your Lips Moving. And in particular, I was more interested, less interested in this in the in the vents that were you know, just using a, a single dummy because I was a puppeteer with an entourage. I was I saw people like William Love, uh, Walter Cole, Frank mm-hmm. Travis, and and John Cooper. I saw the pictures mm-hmm. and descriptions of their acts as being these stage events. Yes. Were they yeah, more demonstrating, or were they actually were their characters uh, as you described? Uh, um, like Charlie McCarthy was. Sure. Well, with just to pick one of those that you just mentioned, like with Don, John W. Cooper, the name of his act was Fun in a Barber Shop. And so you would see uh, John W. Cooper was the ventriloquist, and then these different dummies were the clients in the, in the chair uh, or talking from the other chairs in the room, that type of thing. So it really wasn't about relationship there as much as, wow, he can do, he can do seven voices plus his own voice. That's incredible. So I, don't, I still don't, uh, you know, there's not really evidence of a relationship and a developed character. Now, with John W. Cooper's primary character, uh, Sam, you do start to see more of that uh, association. I don't know that it can be conveyed, though, through a cast of characters as well as just the one at a time. Um, you know, we, we should also just say that although we talked about the book in 1772, I mean, it would be, be uns- it would be surprising if human beings from pretty much the time they became homo, sa- homo sapiens weren't messing around somehow or other with their voices and inanimate objects and trying to make, you know, life more exciting by doing this. We do, for example, at least know about engastromyths in ancient Greece. Yeah. yeah, the whole idea of the, uh, you know, the oracle at Delphi and all of that, um, the use of voice for uh, deception and for mimicry and all of that, type, yes, it absolutely is an archaic thing um, and has been around. And so those people who would then, you know, hone that into not moving their lips, concealing the fact that it was them doing the sounds are going to just be able to make a better name for themselves, be more popular or more mysterious than the ones that were doing uh, that mimicry and those voices without attempting to uh, keep their lips still. So you know, so that actually is a nice springboard, Steve, to get us closer to the present. Because one of the things that you've said is that, um, you know, people lose interest after 30 seconds about whether they can see your lips moving, moving or not. You're not going to keep an audience spellbound, particularly in this day and age, right. by that simple trick. That's right, because um, like a magician who's just doing a, a, a routine that shows his skill, it de- becomes a demonstration in the eyes of the audience. So you don't want the audience t- to be sitting there experiencing a, de- a demonstration. You want them involved, and, and the way to do that is with, is with character. Um, audiences invest themselves emotionally in characters. That's why what Lisa is describing with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy was so extremely effective and, and successful. 
Um, yes, Steve's exactly right. That is that is the nature of it. To be a great ventriloquist, you absolutely have to have that technique, but that is absolutely insufficient to be a successful ventriloquist. You have to go beyond that with character development, just stage presence, and you have to be funny, and you have to, I mean, it's just there's so much that goes into a successful vent act, and good ventriloquism is just that foundation, but not sufficient. So, Lisa, for all those years that I was a kid watching Ed Sullivan, and I was the kind of kid who really enjoyed stuff like that, uh, ventriloquists, uh, and so it wasn't just Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen, uh, Paul Winchell came along, uh, Jimmy Nelson, there were various people that you would see, and then Ed Sullivan went away, and... For all intents and purposes, at least in terms of the broadcast media, ventriloquism went away for a long time, too. There just wasn't an obvious showcase for it, um, at least in, in prime time or anything like that. There might have been kids' shows in the morning. So so what brought it back? Well, I, I think in that, those what I would call those gap years where there's not a variety show on the air like Ed Sullivan, you still had uh, I, what I think are three major players in the ventriloquism world. You had Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop, who were, uh, you know, entertaining millions of children and, and, you know, with their PBS shows and things like that. So she was a very well-known ventriloquist at that time. Willie Tyler joined the cast of Laugh-In uh, the last year that it was on, and so people were seeing him there uh, in addition to other guest appearances he would have on, uh, you know, shows um, of the day, like Donnie and Marie show and that type of thing. Um, and then you have Jay Johnson, who's uh, had that... that uh, primary cast role on soap while that was on. So we had those three that were still that main tier of, of publicly recognized ventriloquists. But it, you're right, as far as the emergence of uh, Jeff Dunham's talent and his just you know meteoric rise to to stardom has been a, a huge piece of of that uh, resurgence and then America's got talent uh, which is showcasing variety acts of all types that has given uh, a massive audience to uh, ventriloquists so um you know, I just want to mention soap uh, again for a second. I believe it was, believe it was Chuck and Bob. I think that was right. I think Bob was the was the dummy. Yeah. And and so Steve, you know, one of the conceits in soap was you have this kind of dysfunctional family uh, of people who are not only dysfunctional but they're kind of stupid too. Some of them are anyway. Um, and so this guy who's a family member is you know in the house with his dummy, and the dummy is the person quote-unquote person who can say stuff, right? You know, and I don't know how often that is the case, but the person who can say something transgressive, the person who can speak a truth. I mean, for example, Billy Crystal on Soap played a closeted gay man. The dummy was the only person who would ever acknowledge that uh, or talk about it. There's this sense that the dummy has permission, right? Right. And more than that, uh, even without permission, because (laughs) Bob was an alpha character. Right. And that's often the case. That creates the dynamic... Um, that that you can start rolling comedy off of, right? And there were, and Bob was so Bob. Uh, we should say that in real life, Charlie McCarthy had his own bedroom at the Bergen household and stuff like that. And Bob insisted that breakfast be made for him, and you know he wanted to be waited on like he was a right. person, right? I believe Jay even said that Bob wanted to be listed on the call sheet. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. And those kinds of that that is that's what contributes to those identities. Of course, Edgar Bergen put Charlie McCarthy away, but the idea that Charlie would live on in the house or you know have a tea party with Candace or that that you know Jay would that that Bob was doing anything other than just sitting in the case between takes. It's necessary for people to buy into like what what uh, Steve was saying about that that relationship that you want to believe that they're doing those things and it adds to the comedy and believability. So, uh, so America's Got Talent comes along. Jeff Dunham comes along. We should maybe just say a little bit about Jeff Dunham. I mean, and I watched a, a bunch of clips of him too, just to get ready for this show. Um, and I'm guessing, Steve, that you would say one of the one of the things about this guy is not only is his material funny, and he's got um, he's got multiple characters. He kind of got the Walter or whatever the one he was sort of started out with, but he's got other ones. He seems technically very gifted. He seems like he can, among other things, have two dummies talking to one another at once and they're moving and they're animated. He seems like he's got like some special gifts. He He's gifted and talented as an artist, but he's also very well practiced and very well rehearsed and he's very imaginative and he never stops working. He's earned every bit of success he's got. Yeah. I, Lisa, any thoughts about what, what made Dunham so special, so breakout? No, I, I mean... Steve hit it right on the on the head there. Jeff is probably the hardest working person I've ever met in real life, and he is constantly reinventing himself, creating new characters, but holding on to the best parts of them so that the audience will stay connected to the characters. He's just, uh, you know, he's, he's just got all of the bases covered with regard to performance. He is. Jeff's that type of person that would have been the best at whatever he had attempted in life just because of his his work ethic, his creativity, um, and just his commitment to being excellent. So let's uh, uh, hear another sample of this. So America's Got Talent. Uh, a number of ventriloquists have kind of broken out there. Uh, here's uh, Darcy Lynn Farmer uh, in 2017. Darcy, why did you both decide to enter the show? Well, it was one of my big dreams. Um, but also, I would really like to keep uh, ventriloquism alive because it's not common, you know? So. <laughs> well, listen, Darcy, best of luck. I really hope you both Thank do well. Thank you so much. All right, good luck. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Hit it. <laughs> Wait, you're going to sing? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> so. So, Lisa, now you've got us moving in a new direction, which is you have a talented dummy. It's not enough to be uh, have, have some rapport, <laughs> some back-and-forth repartee. The dummy's actually got to be a pretty good singer. Well, the singing ventriloquist has been around for quite some time, and um, Terry Fader's made an incredible career out of mm-hmm. it as well. If that Darcy was already a really talented singer, so her use of singing in ventriloquism is kind of a natural extension. Uh, but yeah, you're right. The, the the game, the stakes are always getting higher uh, to be successful and to be uh, separated from the pack. So uh, yeah, Darcy's really found an amazing uh, niche for herself and has a huge fan base. You know, Steve, when my my son's thirty now, but when he was growing up. Um, 
So he's growing up in the the 90s and early aughts. And I actually did make a conscious decision because I realized that he and his friends were spending an awful lot of time with Nintendo and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I said, said, you got to see some live stuff. And and there was this movement that was often referred to as neo-vaudeville that was beginning to happen right around that time. So I took him and his friends to see the Flying Karamazov brothers do, you know, their complicated juggling stuff. There were some guys in New York we saw called the Flaming Idiots who had all kinds of, once again, very funny neo-vaudeville stuff and and you suddenly realize and I uh, we went to magic shows with we all kinds of stuff but um, you suddenly realize that there's an excitement uh, about something that can't be digitally simulated I assume that's a lot of what your career is based on that it's exciting for people who are getting used to everything being polished up and digitally uh, altered and post-produced it's exciting to see something more raw that's not only my vision um, as a performer, but that's also what I what I'm sensing from the audience at large, more and more as time goes on, um, and they're more digitally immersed. That when they they want, we're always performing in 3D, no matter what. That's that's one advantage. But to see something that's live, anything can happen. Um, any little nuance that you catch from the audience that goes into your performance is something that happened just for them in that moment. You can, there's no comparison. To, um, to the kind of connection that you can have with an audience that lives on after your performance. So, Lisa, before we uh, end this segment, I have to ask, like, what if I were to go to the Vent Haven Museum in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, what would I be looking at? What do you have there? Well, the museum started as a private collection in 1910 by a man named uh, William Shakespeare Berger, who loved ventriloquism, and he actively collected uh, ventriloquism dummies, puppets, ephemera, recordings, costumes, scripts, uh, photographs, everything. And uh, when he passed away in 1972, the museum became a, um, a public museum. And so when he died, uh, we had about 500 dummies and puppets, and now we have 980. Um, people come here for tours, and uh, they get to see dummies that are very, very famous, like Charlie McCarthy, and they get to see Jeff Dunham stuff and Darcy Lynn stuff, and then they get to see dummies that are as old as the Civil War. Uh, so it's really an interesting, uh, one-of-a-kind place to visit. Okay, I have to ask you one more question because it'll set up the next uh, segment that Steve and I are doing. So, I don't know, are there ever times where you had to work a little bit late, it kind of gets dark outside, everybody else has gone home for the day, the visitor's there, and you're alone in a building with 900 dummies? Are there ever moments where you think, i got to get out of here? <laughs> no, <laughs> there's not. But, but, uh, but you know, it is something that I deal with uh, with tourists all the time. It's it because of the valley of the uncanny and because the whole point of puppeteering and ventriloquism is the illusion of life that if you didn't perceive any life in these puppets then the figure maker failed so you want them to have enough of that sense that they will buy into the act but but there yeah there's nothing here that is intentionally scary or you know there's no animatronics or anything that's set up to pop out at you or anything like that it, but it, it is a natural feeling that people have when they come here, and I, and I talk to them about that. Um, it's almost uh, universal. All right. It sounds like you're letting down your guard a little bit. You know, they're going to take advantage of that at some point, Lisa. But thanks very much uh, for talking us to, to us today while you're still alive anyway. Uh, Lisa Sweezy, a curator and director of the Van Haven Museum in, uh, in Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, the world's only museum dedicated to ventriloquism. Steve Petra and I will be back with another guest after the proverbial this. 
Maven Triloquist I got a dummy on my knee He's always making fun of me Okay, Steve Petra still with me. Uh, also joining us for this segment uh, is Kenneth Gross, Alan F. Hilfiger, uh, distinguished professor of English at Rochester University, author of several books exploring ideas of metamorphosis and animation in literature, including Puppet, an essay on uncanny life. So before we go to Kenneth Gross, um, Steve, um, I used to have this friend who had a car named Flattery because flattery will get you nowhere. And she would talk to the car, and she would yell at the car, and she would address it by its name and stuff like that, particularly when it wouldn't start. Um, so, I mean, people anthropomorphize cars and all kinds of inanimate objects, but it seems to me like a dummy's on a different level. And even though you got in this not to have a particular weird bond with one dummy, but to maybe work with a whole panoply of, of different uh, uh, creatures and dummies, I don't know. Do they start to seem kind of not just inanimate objects to you? Do they take on anything else? In in a artistic sense, in a creative sense, um, they help to fuel uh, their own point of view. Um, as you develop working with a, a character on stage, it becomes more clear within within your mind um, what where this character can go, and then that gets attributed to the character. So there's a little spot in your mind that could mm-hmm. be that character, and it can react from its own point of view. Which is similar to what uh, authors of uh, fiction say or playwrights say. At a certain point, the characters start telling me right. things it, about themselves. That that seems not a stretch. It's, it's not a medical condition. Right. But. Okay. <laughs> so, but Kenneth Gross, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi. Thank you. Yes. And and I mean, in the popular imagination, uh, obviously this this can be taken to to much more creepy and scary areas. But maybe we should just hark back to something that Lisa was talking about in the previous segment. Uh, Kenneth Gross, there's a way in which ventriloquism does have a slightly dark history. I mean, if you go back hundreds of years, I assume it starts to be associated with things like demonic possession and stuff like that. It does. Um... And it also is associated with a sort of charlatanry, that is, the charlatanry of demonic possession. Um, There's a famous uh, treatise in the early 17th century where Protestants accuse Catholic priests of using ventriloquism to fake the demonic possession of uh, subjects so they could prove their power to exorcise the demons. So it's dangerous because it harks back to demonic possession, but also the kind of faking or um, making up of demonic possession. Right. And uh, you, what you, we remember from the Salem witch trials, and I think there were more witch trials in Connecticut than there were in Salem, it was often this idea that there were dolls, right? Dolls that were not strictly dolls. Right. Um, and that, that uh, there was always a sense that witches were always m- making dolls or puppets or sort of little tiny doubles of human beings as the vessel for uh, curses and, you know, sort of magical damage, harm. So just to make a puppet was itself somehow a little bit dangerous and and, uh, channeling occult forces, hatreds, malice that was just sort of free-floating otherwise. And we should say, Steve, even though you perform for everybody, all kinds of groups and stuff like that, I understand there's still some churches, church groups, where they're thinking, no, no, that's not okay. 
There are a few, mm. um, less and less, um, even as we speak. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I haven't, I haven't um, encountered a, a problem. Right. And but I have, I have performer friends who have have some stories to tell. Yeah. Although there are, I, I, on YouTube, I had no trouble finding Christian ventriloquists too. Oh, that's a thing. Yep. Because there's a sense also that if it's not demonic, then it's this incredibly wholesome kind of entertainment. And, and yeah, and that's uh, that's that's the right perspective. Although I also noticed that the Christian ventriloquists, one of the clips I saw, that dummy was being kind of maybe a little naughtier than anybody in the church would have found, but would have been comfortable being. It's a way to con- – I, I, I started out as a puppeteer in a church. That's where I got my uh, training before I got trained by an actual uh, author and puppeteer um, of renown. And it was an opportunity to, to teach um, – you had to teach as well as entertain. Mm-hmm. So – so by doing that, you create another uh, point of view that's re- that you can explain to, to you know, g- one technique is get things wrong and then right the wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, Kenneth Gross, um, I've talked to a lot of magicians over the years, and inevitably the, a magician who's been working for a long time will say, I did a trick and I didn't understand how it happened. I didn't know what happened. I didn't plan it and it worked out a certain way, you know, and then they get this kind of look on their faces. And I understand that you in talking to ventriloquists uh, and puppeteers have had a similar experience where a lot of them will say that at a certain point it seemed as though the puppet or dummy did something on its own. Um, a little bit like that. Oh, and I must say I've only really talked to puppeteers, not to ventriloquists, but this goes both for people doing, you know, very modern uh, experimental shows, people doing sort of traditional puppet theater in Asia that is working, that is they, they, in the process of working with this inanimate object and giving it motion in life, they find a voice or a gesture or a movement that they hadn't predicted. They don't know ahead of time what character the puppet they've made will have until they start trying to work with it. Um, and there is sometimes a sense of a kind of magical shock. Uh, my sense is that they don't really think that the puppet is possessed or that there's some alien spirit speaking through it, but that they don't recognize what the puppet can do until they start working with it. Mm-hmm. And they do. There's a sense of shock. Uh, that it has a, a kind of life of its own, although not quite a human life. So, you know, Steve, when I was a kid growing up, I was a very easily scared kid. I was not a brave kid. And I loved ventriloquists. It didn't, never occurred to me to think uh, anything sinister about the dummy or anything like that. I just thought they were very funny. You know, and then this movie Magic came out. And that was, I was the first time it ever crossed my mind that there might be something sinister about a ventriloquist dummy or anything like that. And so it suggests to me that we're not necessarily wired to react that way. I think I, well, there's a, there's a, a inherent wiring and there's a cultural wiring mm-hmm. and the cultural wiring sort of reinforces itself. And that's, that's where I find the being afraid of a, of a dummy thing mm-hmm. um, has, has its, its shelf life. Yeah. So for me, you know, for me, I was never, I never had that fear. I played with puppets when I was a little kid. I grew up, you know, in the 50s, and they had to kill time on TV. So they had puppets. Fortunately, they had good puppeteers and good puppets to do that. So it, it's, it's, it's an individual's perspective, but I think it's a, a phobia that's, um, 
sometimes just handed down. Yeah, and reinforced by culture, as you're suggesting. Yes. Although, Kenneth, and Kenneth Groth, the other thing that strikes me is that as children, we live in our own self-created fantasy worlds, and sometimes we're up in our rooms making our stuffed animals talk and stuff like that. It just wouldn't seem that much of a stretch, you know, to look at some guy getting a dummy to talk. It's There's something about adulthood where we start to maybe distrust uh, and impute demonic or sinister characteristics to what used to be an innocent act. Well, there is there's always something a little bit unsettling to people uh, in adults playing with dolls um, and and also playing with puppets as if it's associated with something very primitive and early and childish uh, and something that adults have put away. Um, and that, that kind of makes sense. And often it's true that the voices that puppeteers in traditional puppet shows attribute to puppets are, as you've said, sort of more anarchic, more snarky, more mocking, as if they channel something that adults have put away, not just playing with puppets, but, you know, emotions and impulses and, and fantasies that there are suspect to good, rational, down-to-earth adults. Um, and since they're speaking through these things that are they're, they're smaller than humans, they're out of proportion, they, they're sort of humanoid, but often weirdly like animals, like robots. It's that much stranger. Well, I, I think also, Steve, there's a way in which in most acts that I've seen, to come back to, to something we've kind of talked about already, mm-hmm. the dummy has more power than the ventriloquist. I mean, like if you just got out there with your dummy and verbally crapped all over your dummy, you know, people wouldn't think that was very funny. No. Uh, but for Charlie McCarthy, Charlie McCarthy was always saying to Edgar Bergen, I will crush you. You know, there was, he just sort of had this whole attitude, which I think you see a lot even in, in Dunham's uh, dummies too, that like the dummy has to have a little bit more power than the vent for it to be funny. And maybe that sort of feeds in to this idea. Who's the strong person out on stage? Uh, I'm going to read something from one of the articles that, that uh, uh, you sent me. Mm-hmm. Um, in a puppet show, the ventriloquist's human voice exerts control over an external object that secretly threatens to overthrow the ventriloquist's authority. <laughs> it's the Frankenstein story, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's exactly what, what I do. Now, I'm, do, I'm doing performances for either kids in school or for families with with you know with kids. Uh, no, I don't do just adult performances. And I have I create a a, a a sequence of events where I I become disassembled as far as an authority figure goes. <laughs> the the power that was the right word that you that mm-hmm. used. The power transfers to me. Even certain parts of the stage theatrically rob you of power when the puppet can pull you off center stage. That's why I was interested in those big theatrical um, things from vaudeville. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's exactly what happens. You, the dummy is, is, is accumulating power, and, as, and the more extreme you can be with that, I think the more surprised and delighted the audience is. You know, Kenneth Gross, on the other hand, I think there's a continuum here. Nobody's afraid of Kermit the Frog, you know, but I've seen 
acts. There was a guy named Daniel Butterworth who used to do marionettes around here, and he he was incredible. But he, I remember there was one moment where he uh, kind of laid a marionette down on stage and walked away as if to get some more marionettes. But the spotlight stayed on the marionette, and you realized that its chest was rising and falling as if it was breathing. And, and since then, I've seen there's a company called Handspring that really works as far into that uncanny valley as they can possibly get. How much can we get this puppet to really seem as though it's it, it has biologically human qualities? And Kenneth, of course, I feel like that's one of the areas when you work in there, you start maybe unsettling people. Right. I mean, it's partly because it's not, I mean, there's the uncanny valley thing where you have a almost too perfect a simulation of human life. But the puppet shows that have really moved me are when the puppets have life, but it's not just a conventional life. It's the life you associate with animals or ghosts or children or mad people. Um, so it, it, your relationship to it is to something that's a little bit scary and alien. Um, I think it partly works because it calls out to something alien in ourselves, something very early or childlike that we don't like to talk about. Um, I, I mean, I like this idea that, that the ventriloquist has this intense relationship with the puppet. Puppeteers have a relationship with their puppet, but it's not part of the show. It's not on display, so the power dynamic is often concealed and invisible, exactly. um, and that seems just uh, so. So it's a, it's a, you, there's a different order of theater there. You said exactly. Uh, just go ahead. Yeah. I was a puppeteer before I was a ventriloquist. Mm-hmm. I was very reluctant to leave that world that our guest is describing mm-hmm. and enter the world that we discussed with Lisa. Right, and I, I it was risky. Well, I mean, I assume we're gonna have to take a break here, but I assume. Like if you work uh, doing ventriloquism, at the end of the show, if like people come up, they probably want to meet the dummy more than they want to meet you. They want to meet. The, they want to meet the dummy. They want to meet the puppet. They want to take pictures with the puppet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and they always ask. And a lot of kids will ask, "How does it speak?" And I always tell them how it's done. Right. I'll, I'll demonstrate it for them, yeah. and they don't lose any of the delight that they that w- that from the show whatsoever. They're intrigued. All right. Well, uh, that's a perfect bridge to what we're about to do. So uh, thanks again to uh, Kenneth Gross, uh, professor of English at Rochester University, author of several books exploring ideas of metamorphosis and animation in literature, including Puppet, an essay on uncanny life. We'll take a break and you will explain, uh, as you would to one of those children, to Kion Wolf how it's done. She's going to come in here and see if she can learn to be a ventriloquist. Today's show was produced by Mortimer Nalea. My name is Josh. Well, anyway, I did most of the work. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. Did. Didn't. Or... The part of Bill Curry was played by Candace Bergen. Bill Curry is boring. Quiet. On tomorrow's show, a conversation about how television and politics overlap. For one thing, dummies are back in style in both. I said be quiet. Do you want to go back in the box? No, not the box. 
All right, so that's so weird because we could hear her voice, but she's sitting in here. It's, it's like it's magic. Uh, so yeah, that's right. So she needs her microphone on, Betsy. Um, Kion Wolf has come uh, into the studio here. Uh, Steve Petra is going to give uh, her a lesson. And, and I guess me a lesson, too. I've been handed a, uh, a mouth with a well, – how would we describe this? It's a microphone and kind of a disembodied mouth. Um, uh, it's made by Axtel Expressions, and it's called Mic Mouth which pretty much describes what it is. It's, it's a ventriloquist, like a lot of uh, ventriloquists have a mask routine. Mm-hmm. So this is like a mask routine without having to have a mask. Right. You can hold it in front of somebody's mouth. Right. And uh, Kion's got uh, some kind of bird puppet o- over there. That's uh, right. So, so what do we need to learn to do first? Okay, well, um, you, this is something that takes months, years to get good at. <laughs> so before we throw you to the wolves, let me set you up with a few things. Because I learned as an adult, so I, so I had to overcome... These like physical barriers. Um, you want to keep your lips apart, but not wide open. And I'm going to give you a, a mouth position because your teeth should not be clenched. Okay. That's a mistake that people make, and it always sound like this. That's your first clue, clue that they're doing it wrong. That's yeah. exactly right. And and they think they're impressing you. Or I can do what you do, <laughs> right? And yet no one will pay them. And <laughs> so you want to. Here's what I what I'll tell you to do. Take the bottom lip on just on one side and touch it to your front teeth. Your front teeth, but on only on the side, not in okay. the middle. All right. Now, these I'm going to give you the easy alphabet and okay. we'll just we'll do some of this way you have a record of success. By the before. way, I'm gripping this puppet cuz it's <laughs> soothing to me. That's okay. That's <laughs> it's that, exactly what you need at this time. Um so sorry to say like a a a good. That's good because you get you have to use your tongue more than you normally use it. Your okay. tongue is doing all the work. You've got no lips, so your lips are going to become your tongue and the back of your front teeth. Okay. A A C C D D. That's good. She's very good at that. Oh, You're thank you. Wow. All right. E E G G H H I I J J K K L L N N O O Q Q R R S S T T U U X X Z Z. Excellent. You might have noticed that Steve left out several letters, and those I believe are the plosives, right? There, there. Some of them are plosives, some of them are not, but they all require some type of lip lip involvement. Um, so let's do let's uh, let's go let's do the easy ones first. F and V. F and V usually use your top teeth and your bottom lip. So instead of F and V, it's almost the same sound. One has voice, the other does not. F, you're going to use like a TH, but not a TH where you put your tongue between your teeth. You're going to put your tongue behind your teeth. Oh. And go there. Like, we use the word very. Is my lip still against my, the side of my front teeth? Yes, because that'll keep, <laughs> that, that keeps your jaw and your lip from moving for now. I see. Okay. Until your nervous system gets revamped and you don't have normal reactions anymore. So um, we'll, see, we'll use the phrase very funny. There's a V and an F. And V has voice. F is just air. So it's like a... So very... Very. 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 All right. Very. Funny. Funny. Now tr- do it one more time. You had a little bit of lip movement, which yeah, is not, yeah. not too bad. I mean, there are people who are professionals who have more lip movement than that. And But I want you to try to think more of... Exaggerating the move of your tongue. Hmm. Very, very funny. Funny. Very funny. Funny. Very funny. Very funny. 
<laughs> you're See. good at this. There's a little bit of movement at the All bottom right. there, but you you have a knack for this. Thanks, right. Colin. And she did it one the one one last time she did it. It was almost still. Yeah. So say, Colin is very funny. Colin is very funny. There you go. Yeah. And you don't even yeah. know who wow. said that. No. <laughs> no, I thought it was the bird. Yeah. Uh, no, the bird in my hand. Uh, do we have time to move on to a more sure. difficult letter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's let's uh, let's tackle a plosive. Uh, uh, B's and P's are plosives. M is not a plosive because you're not building up air and then releasing it. Mm-hmm. So a B and a P um, is a plosive. So let's do. Uh, you're going to do something called a um, press. Instead of b with your lips, your top lip is going to be the ridge where your front top teeth meet your your uh, palate. Uh huh. And your bottom lip is going to be your tongue. Let me see you do it. B boy, basket boy, boy. I almost see your you, tongue what, on you, the side of your mouth. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, because well, my tongue is moving back. I, I can't hide that. Yeah, there's my no spotlight moving. on your tongue. Right. You don't worry about people seeing your tongue. You want to keep your your lip still when you say, and you're using the the letter D, but you're pressing your tongue forward into that ridge. Where your teeth meet your upper, your, your upper, the, your palate, uh-huh. and you're pressing it. Duh, duh. Duh. So we go from duh, duh, duh. duh. With duh, duh, your 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 tongue is pointy. Duh. duh. You feel it? Mm-hmm. With, with to make it a, more like a P, it's a substitution. It's not an exact replica. Mm-hmm. So make it more like a P. You're gonna press that tongue in, and go puh, duh, puh, duh, puh. So and say uh, what they give us here, Peter and Paul. Forget Peter Piper. If that's that's unreal. Say Peter, Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul. Peter, Peter. Try to spread out your tongue a little more. Press your tongue in a little more and do it slowly. It's okay. Peter, 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 Peter and Paul. Paul. And I I have a sentence that we can say together here as a um. A popular NTR podcast. Try that. <laughs> a popular NTR podcast. That was the yeah. best. That, that was, was the really best yet. Yeah. yeah. Very, so uh, we should also talk a little bit about things that a ventriloquist ultimately has to think about as she starts to get ready. I mean, one thing she would have to do ultimately is decide what the voice would be. It's not going to be her own voice. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Is that just something that's artistic and arbitrary? Or? No, 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 no. The, um, I do a lot of different characters, so mm. I, I, I was a puppeteer, so I, I had to be my own entourage. Mm. I, was, I was not an entourage, but my own uh, repertory company. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I really studied hard to create different uh, um, placements. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you a few, like, like, uh, a nasal placement is most of the sound coming out of the nose. A lot of ventriloquists like that is loud. The noise <laughs> coming right out of your nose. And uh, but um, another one in the same range is a denasal, which is what I was doing, where there's no sound coming out of your nose. You think of that as um, like if you have a cold. Can you say? Uh, uh, let's just, just don't don't speak ventriloquially. Just say a popular NPR podcast. But use a, a voice where, um, like, like your nose is stuffed. 
Nice a lady. NPR podcast. There you go. A popular. <laughs> nice and, lady. And, that, and you know how you tell the difference? Because if you're doing a denasal voice, you hold your nose, the voice sounds exactly the same because mm-hmm. there's no sound coming out of your nose. And then you can, raise, you can raise the pitch. You can make it really high and higher and higher and higher. And then you can squeeze it and, and you're larynx. Is there one voice that you can do forever and ever? Like, one, <laughs> like you've got a lot of stamina? Or is there, and there, is there another voice that, like, wastes you? Uh, there are voices that waste me. Mm. Um... Something. He's holding up a something. Figure. Yeah, it's a scary cup. If, if people think ventriloquist, ventriloquism is creepy, you might as well reinforce it. <laughs> and uh, this is a scary skull cup. Oh yes, uh, and a scary skull cup. So a voice like that as gravelly. That hurts after a while. I'm, I'm, I do it constantly. It's one of my default um, voices that I use for different types of characters, depending on uh, and on on what I want to get out of them. And I can only do that so long, mm. it's going to yeah. wear me out. But you, some, you know what I realized, too? I think people do this more than they uh, realize. you got a cat named Whiskey. Does that cat have a voice? Do you, do you sometimes do Whiskey talking around the house? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah so how, how does the Whiskey talk? <laughs> Excuse me, don't mind me. Don't okay, that's, through here. That's, yeah. that's, I'm very handsome. That's good, because that's like, that's like a dopey voice. Sure. <laughs> 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 Don't mind me, you're just coming through. No, if you take yeah. that, now that's an airy voice. It's an open throat, and that's the placement. Yeah. And if you were if you were going to make it uh, D-Days a little bit like that, like that, it's a little... Likewise, there's, there's the voices we use to our cats. Yeah. Like telling them, you're so handsome, aren't right. you the most handsome little thing in the world? We've got, right. a, we've got a new dog in our house named Declan, and I've been working yeah. on his voice. Because he's the only <laughs> man ever He's going, I really like to go play apples. <laughs> I really like to go to the apple tree and play with the apples. So we all do it. It's yeah, just yeah, a matter of like not looking like you're doing this. Yeah, you, and there's character there. He's very yeah. dependent. Yeah. He, he's almost pleading with you, right. but he's telling you that he has preferences. Yeah. And hoping that you'll play along with that. So uh, we only have two minutes left here. So, and Steve, you've been such a great sport about doing this and working with us. So, uh, let's say somebody uh, wants to book you for I, I, what, what kind of stuff do you wind up doing? What are your gigs? I, I do. I do. I specialize in certain types of of, of work. I do school assemblies, mm-hmm. uh, science, math, and reading. I have a biology show. All the organs of the body. We pull the intestines across the stage. <laughs> there's a salute to mucus. There's nose hair. <laughs> There's a and the star is brain on a spine. It's a talking brain on a spinal column. Yeah. Um, Lots of character possibilities. Here. And 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 kids are. I, I was told they were going to be afraid of that when before I started doing it. But no, they love it. It's a it, I, twenty years I've been doing this show. I have a literacy show um, and I have a money and math program. So I, school shows are a big thing that I do. I also do a lot of library programs mm. or um, family events. Right, not so many, you know, not so many bachelor parties. If you have ventriloquist mm-hmm. at your no. bachelor oh, party, something's <laughs> already gone wrong there. And so, just we'll put a we'll put a, put a link to you on our webpage, uh, on the webpage for this show. But uh, just on the it's, air, how do people find you? At stevepetra.com or petrapuppets.com. Both right. will bring you to my website. All right, Kyle Wolf, say goodbye as a bird. <laughs> so long, bitey. <laughs> All right. Uh, a life in show business. What can we say? Thanks so much for listening today. Thanks to Josh Nalea for making this whole thing become real. And special thanks to our new friend, Steve Petra. Uh, stay tuned. Next week, we'll be doing a salute to mucus. So Steve will be coming back. 